0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 10. This is now our second class in uh, this section, dealing with uh, what I'm calling personal and public wisdom. Chapters 1 through 9, I titled uh, Parental Wisdom. Uh, chapters 10 through 24 makes our next uh, section here personal and public wisdom. And uh, the aspects of this uh, the personal wisdom as we stand before the Lord and the integrity of our heart as living uh, testimonies to the Word of God, uh, fulfilling our responsibilities of imaging God, which is our Adamic mandate, uh, operating according to the standard of His Word, not only personally but also in public whereby we have impact in our community, in our city, in our locality, in our nation. And so we'll talk about this as well. It's throughout this whole section. Uh, It's how we can operate on the basis of wisdom and and have impact in our culture. And uh, it kind of flies in the face. The world would tell us to just kind of keep that to yourself and just shut up about all that Bible stuff and whatever. If you want to believe all that Holy Roller stuff, you can believe what you want to believe. Just don't ever mention it to anybody. Don't ever talk about it in public. Uh, keep that to yourself. And uh, the whole idea of a very internalized, personal, top secret, never talk about it kind of faith is, uh, is anathema to the scriptures. We are publicly declaring before men and angels alike the high regard that we hold the Lord, the high regard that we hold his word. And we speak that truth in love. And uh, I think this is going to come out uh, loud and clear in uh, the process of these chapters. All right, before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to bless our time of study, quieting our heart under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? most gracious heavenly father we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have today to assemble together we pray for those that could not be with us today father i ask that you would bless them and uh, provide for them to be here at the next available opportunity i do thank you father for the book of proverbs i thank you for the transition now into this new section we're asking for your uh, blessing and assistance in uh, the upcoming chapters and handling the matter that uh, that you have for us i just thank you father in jesus christ's name amen As I've said before, uh, these uh, chapters are different than any other part of the Bible. They're different than other uh, chapters or the books of the Bible, other things that I've taught in the past. And so as such, um, it's going to be a little bit awkward as I get adjusted to a new style or a new method or a new approach. Uh, You can't handle Proverbs 10 through 24 like you handle Galatians or Romans or any other book of the Bible that has order, structure all right? Because there is no order. There is no structure to 10 through 24. And uh, there's a lot of Hebrew experts and scholars and geniuses that will write books and books and books spending hours explaining to you, oh, yes, there is order. Yes, there is structure. Uh, But none of them agree with one another, and they're all just making it up, I'm convinced, uh, to try to impress people with how smart they are to, uh, to bring order to that which God put no order to, all right? Uh, We have uh, verse after verse after verse, and uh, sometimes two verses go together, sometimes they don't. Um, Sometimes you come to a theme twice or three times in a chapter, um, or, or not, as it were. It's like a shotgun, all right? The pellets are going everywhere. And uh, that's the way he designed it, all right? And really, this is the way we learn. This is the way, uh, I'm thankful that that Proverbs is written this way, or the bulk of Proverbs is is written this way, because that's how we learn. It's almost a a shotgun scatter approach to how we grow in the various doctrinal understandings that we come to. Because we may may not learn the same doctrine in the same order as, as one another. That's fine, all right? Because he teaches us what we need, when we need it, at that time. And uh, I think Proverbs is written uh, exactly uh, to that purpose. We have a new subheading called the Proverbs of Solomon. In Proverbs 10.1, this forms a subheading within the overall collection. Um, We have uh, the introduction to the book in Proverbs 1.1, which is the most significant of all the introductions, uh, the actual heading to the book itself in Proverbs 1.1, and then subheadings. In ten, 1, 25, one, that's chapter 25, verse 1, chapter 30 in verse 1, and chapter 31 in verse 1. Now those are undeniable. Those uh, Everyone admits those, everyone acknowledges those as section headings for the chapters that follow. So t- we're going to take chapters 1 through 9 as a unit, which we've already done. Chapters 10 through 24 as a unit, which we're doing now. Uh, 25 through 29 is another unit. Sometimes it's called the book of Hezekiah. Uh, because those are the Proverbs that were gathered during uh, by the men of Hezekiah during his day, and they were then added to the canon, right? Let's take a look at that, Proverbs 25 and verse 1. We saw this last week. We won't spend a lot of time on it today, but these also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. And so in Hezekiah's reign then these chapters, 25 through 29, were added to the previous chapters. If you were a believer in, in say, the 9th century B.C., and uh, you had your own copy of the book of Proverbs, uh, it would end at, at chapter 24. It would end, it would be a shorter book of Proverbs than what you and I have today. All right? These got added later, obviously, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, the, the author of all of Scripture in the process, all right? And uh, I think it's good that we understand the nature of uh, inspiration, the nature of the Holy Spirit's role in not only writing the Scripture, but collecting the Scripture, collating the Scripture, compiling the Scripture, putting 150 Psalms in that order, all right? David didn't write them in that order, and they weren't all written at once, all right? David only wrote about half of them anyway. Moses wrote one of them, Psalm 90, right? Probably also Psalm 91, if you connect those two, um, but they were added later. Solomon wrote one of the Psalms. Anyway, the process of compiling the canon was also superintended by the Holy Spirit, and we're fine with that. We are absolutely fine with that. So uh, we have a subheading there. Another subheading in chapter 30, the words of uh, Augur, whoever he was. He was the son of Jaca, whoever he was. He was the oracle. Oh, okay. The man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and to Ukul. Who were they? All right, So we've got some work in front of us to handle that, but Proverbs 30 was written all by its lonesome, was written all on its own. These are the words of Augur. And then who put them in writing? Who compiled them in the Hebrew language, assuming Augur wasn't speaking Hebrew? Uh, who recorded his words in Hebrew and composed these verses and added chapter 30 to the other 29 chapters? Likewise, Lemuel. Was Lemuel another name for Solomon or not? Some people say he was. Some people say he wasn't which his mother taught him. Ah, well, obviously that must have been Bathsheba, because uh, why? Well, because Bathsheba was Solomon's mother. Oh, okay. And who's Lemuel? Well, somebody, a king that had a mother. All right. Yeah, your logic is dazzling me here. How many kings were there that didn't have mothers? All right. In any event. Yeah, one, only one. Well, he had a human mother. All right. In any event. So we have subheadings. Some people will also add a subheading within the uh, context of chapter 22. We'll deal with that. We can look at it here shortly. 22:17, and obviously it's not exactly the same as the other subheadings, but there is a difference in between verse 16 and 17 there of Proverbs 22. Uh, where it says, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. And so we've switched back to the second person address, rather than much of uh, chapters 10 through 22 is all in the third person. He who does this, he who does that. No, we're back to uh, the second person. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge. And so a person there is speaking in the first person in Proverbs 22, 17. All right. And so some people actually put a a division there. And they will take 2217 uh, to the end of chapter 22 to include all of chapter 23 and all of chapter 24. And uh, so some will include that as a subheading as well or a subsection as well. I'm going to keep it, uh, I think, simpler than that. Uh, Subpoint A, the emphasis, tone, and structure of Proverbs 10 through 24 is quite different from Proverbs 1 through 9. The emphasis, the tone, and the structure its not quite so personal. It's not nearly so intimate. You don't have the begging and the pleading and just the heart pouring out that you see in those first nine chapters with, you know, my son, uh, listen to your father's instruction, do not ignore your mother's instruction kind of a thing. Uh, there's, there's much more of a, of a pleading tone uh, from the heart of parents that are just pouring their hearts out towards their, their children there in those first nine chapters. That disappears in Proverbs 10 through 24. We're switching now more to a, a generic approach, a third-person approach. You know, uh, he who does this is, is a disappointment to his father. I mean, as we see here, a wise son makes a father glad, okay? I'm not talking to you. This is not me and you in a, in a, in a, in a personal address. <laughs> the author's not, not saying, my son, you're a fool and you're a grief to your mother, Right? Or, my son, you're wise, and you're making me glad. That would be in a, in a, in a second-person address, talking to somebody and including yourself in it. No, it's all in the third person. It's generic. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like a parable. Remember, proverbs are, are parables. Parables are proverbs. So, you know, there was a man who had two sons. <laughs> okay, And uh, a wise son makes a father glad, and a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And this is a principle of wisdom that holds true. That's the emphasis, tone, and structure. These short, pithy statements of truth are presented in no discernible order or progression. In other words, the Mishalim, the all right? The Mishalim are not in a, a discernible order or progression. We can't outline the chapters very well. And people who uh, uh, say they can, I think, are... Um, I don't know. They're, they're, they found what they found, I guess. I just don't understand it. And, and, uh, and, and they'll never agree with one another with respect to that. I did this with you a week ago. Uh, if you were here, then you saw this. But look at the pericope heading in chapter 10. It says, contrast of the, wicked and, uh, the righteous and the wicked. Look at the pericope heading for chapter 11. It says the same thing. Contrast the upright and the wicked. Chapter 12, contrast the upright and the wicked. Chapter 13, contrast the upright and the wicked. Are we done yet? <laughs> all right. Chapter 14, contrast the upright and the wicked. Chapter 15, contrast the upright and the wicked. Chapter 16, chapter 17, all the same, contrast the upright and the wicked. <laughs> okay. Um, and chapter 18, contrast the upright and the wicked. It's not until chapter 19 that we get a new pericope heading. We get a new uh, uh, title on life and conduct. And you want to know something? Even within chapter 19, I bet you we're going to contrast the upright with the wicked <laughs> as we speak on life and conduct. See? Which is also the title for chapter 20. It's also the title for chapter 21. It's also the title for chapter 22. It's also the title for chapter 23 of life and conduct. So, there's no discernible order or progression. And we're not going to be able to say, well, okay, this what was developed in chapter 10 is now going to be built upon in chapter 11, is now going to be built upon in chapter 12. It may be or it may not be. Because we're going to come to these same themes again and again and again and again. It's going to be redundant and repetitive. Right? It is going to be redundant. It's going to It's going to review again and again and again. In no discernible order or progression. Now, we can observe some trends. Most of the parallels in the earlier chapters are antithetical. In other words, it is A but B. In, in, in all of these, we're talking about parallelism. The poetry of these Proverbs is all uh, parallel statements. You have an A statement and you have a B statement, right? A foolish son is a grief to his... Uh, a wise son makes a father glad. That's the A statement in Proverbs 10.1. A wise son makes a father glad. That's the A statement. But a foolish son is a grief to his mother. That's the B statement. And because it's A but B, uh, it, it's, an antithetical, uh, it's an antithetical parallelism. A but B. And so count all the buts in those six chapters, <laughs> from chapter 10 to chapter 15. There's a lot of buts. You can just scan down the page and you can see, uh, but, 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 but. I mean, practically every verse has a but right here, a B-U-T, in this chapter. That's the nature of antithetical parallelism. Now, when we get to chapter 16 and following, uh, we have a lot of uh, either uh, synthetic or what's called synonymous or synthetic, all right? And they're not the same. There's There's a difference between synonymous, parallelism, where you say the same thing twice Okay, that's synonymous. And so it's A and B saying the same thing twice. is synonymous. Synthetic is, is progressive. It's, it's an and statement. It's an A and B statement, but it's building on something before. It's not the same thing. It, it adds to it. It, it. it goes beyond. All right, that would be synthetic parallelism. And so it's not synonymous, but it is it, it is an and parallel when we bring it into English. And then when we get to chapter twenty-two, seventeen 17 to the end of chapter 24, we have exhortative Proverbs. It switches back to the second person. It's urging the person to pay attention to wisdom, to live wisdom. It is exhortative, okay, and, and largely echoes the admonitions from the parental wisdom portion of the book. So there's a lot of echo in 22 through 24 that echo chapters 1 through 7 because it's exhortative. All right? In chapter 10 it's a wise son does this, a foolish son does that and leaves it there and you you know it doesn't exhort you be the wise son. <laughs> Don't be the fool. So we have the contrast there. All right? Chapter 10 clearly contrasts the righteous with the wicked. And uh, it, it just jumps at you, practically every verse. You know, how many verses do we have here in Proverbs 10? 32 verses. And in 32 verses, we have 25 uses of either tzaddik or rasha. All right? Either tzaddik or rasha. And we'll give you the vocabulary here shortly. Uh, but 13 times for tzaddik and its cognates, uh, 12 times for rasha and its cognates. And so. Obviously, righteous and wicked, uh, that jumps out at you. The, in fact, uh, that's why it's used as the pericope heading, nine straight times for chapters 10 through 18. Uh, if, if a picture is worth a thousand words, well, there's a picture. <laughs> okay? Let's talk about it. Um, all, when you look at the uses of sadiq and rashak throughout the Old Testament, uh, or throughout Proverbs anyway, this is uh, Proverbs 1 through 31, left to right, um, you know, it's pretty clear, even if you can't read those little letters at the at the bottom of the table, you can at least look at the big blue lines going up and realize, oh, that's chapter 10, <laughs> okay? Uh, chapters one through nine, pretty minimal uses of uh, righteousness and, and wickedness. But when you get to chapter 10, it's off the charts. And uh, 10 through uh, 13, certainly, but even through 18, uh, pretty minimal in 19 and 20, but then chapter 21 boosts it back up again. So this is, uh, these are the kind of things we look at when we observe trends in the text. Spent some time a week ago dealing with the principles of righteousness, and I'm not going to review that again this morning, but uh, these are the verses here on righteousness. You've got uh, tzedek or tzedakah. You've got uh, uh, tzedek as an adjective. And uh, between the masculine tzaddik and the feminine tzedakah, uh nouns for righteousness, goodness, you've got uh, 119 uses, 157 uses. Uh, the adjective sadiq has 206 uses. The Bible has a lot to say about righteousness. And so we spent a lot of time, uh, you know, about half the class last week, uh, looking at some of these verses, looking at Genesis 15:6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We ought to have those concepts down. There should be not a shred of doubt in anybody's mind here with respect to righteousness, that righteousness is God's standard, it is absolute, it is eternal, and we can't earn it or deserve it. (laughs) All right? We can receive it by grace. We can believe in God. It can be reckoned to us. If we are going to be righteous, it's only because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to our account. The only way we can be righteous. And if we try to create a righteousness of our own apart from uh, God and what He provides... Uh, It's not happening. All of our righteousness is filthy in God's sight. And so um, we have the principle there, all right? So Genesis 15, 6, Genesis 18, Abraham's prayer life there. How how can God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And uh, that contrast and that comparison between righteousness and wickedness shows up in Abraham's prayer life. We ought to pay attention to something like that and consider the contrast ourselves especially when we have all these chapters in Proverbs that lays it out as a black and white issue. Leviticus 19, aspects of righteousness there. Deuteronomy 9, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. There's a trinity of verses there dealing with righteousness. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20, and relating that to uh, what our Lord was talking about in John chapter 7. Anyway, these are the issues there. The king was able to rule in righteousness in uh, 1 Kings 10.9. And all the kings after David were judged uh, in their comparison to David. Were they a king that ruled with righteousness, or were they a king that uh, did not rule with righteousness? Were they unjust in their dealings? Were they like David, or were they not like David? But really, the bulk of our uses of tzaddik in the Old Testament come in Psalms and Proverbs, and curiously enough, Isaiah. All right? 135 uses in Psalms, 93 uses in Proverbs, 75 uses in Isaiah. It's the wisdom literature there where we're going to find the bulk of our uses of of righteousness. Uh, Not in Torah. I mean, Torah has some. Torah tells us here's the standard, but wisdom literature really puts the the rubber to the road. Wisdom literature brings it alive of how you and I live in this righteousness, living in the Word of God. All right, and then like I say, 75 uses in Isaiah, which I find extraordinary. Under subpoint B, I want to spend some time this morning dealing with principles of wickedness. So let's spend some time in wickedness this morning. All right, can we spend some time in wickedness this morning? The word wickedness, the concept for study, all right? We want to study this academically. We don't want to study this experientially. Don't, don't spend your day in wickedness and then tell me you were doing homework. Alright. You've done enough homework. The lab is over. <laughs> Time for classroom now. Alright. The term is rasha. And you wanna you gotta close it with a, the guttural, you gotta close your throat there. R-A-S-H-A, close apostrophe, rasha. Okay, and close that throat off. Um, number 7561 is the strongest number with 34 uses, that's the verb. Uh, you have the noun reshat, which is a, a, a noun, masculine noun for wickedness. You got the adjective, rasha, 263 uses of the adjective, so that's far the most common is the adjective. And then uh, another a feminine noun for wickedness is rishlah. Uh, and don't ask me why, and it's the same thing with righteousness. Why, why is there a masculine noun for righteousness and a feminine noun? Why is there a masculine noun for wickedness and a feminine noun? Um, wouldn't it be simpler if they just used one, one gender for righteousness and one gender for wickedness? Well, maybe it'd be simpler, but might not be entirely fair. <laughs> okay, obviously the masculine gender would be righteousness and the feminine gender would be wickedness. I'm teasing. All right. I know, sexist, isn't it? Um, 342 uses. If you put them all together, if you, if you pack together your, your verb and your adjective and your two nouns and uh, combine your list, you get uh, combined search with 342 uses and 312 verses. And that would include 92 in the Psalms, 87 in Proverbs. So it's the same concentration that we had with righteousness as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a bulk of these uses that are in Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, but starting in... Um, Of course, Genesis 18, we were here a week ago. Genesis 18, verses 23 and 25. So the men uh, turned away from there, and they went towards Sodom. While Abraham was still standing before the Lord, and Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And this is his prayer. So we have the tzaddik, and we have the rashat. We have the righteous and the wicked. And in Abraham's prayer life, he's asking if the justice of God is going to judge and treat them alike. Sweep them all away. Uh, As it says in verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. All right, And so in Abraham's thinking that this is inappropriate for God and for who he is, far be it from you to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are alike. They are not alike. Righteousness is not alike wickedness. And to treat them alike is a problem. All right, It's a problem in, in, in um, Abraham's prayers here. All right? There's a lot of teaching that goes into this and some other aspects. But the, the, right away, the whole uh, argument that he raises raises the like treatment, the likeness. Okay? And do you remember what a likeness is? What's a likeness? What's that? A likeness or a comparison? Uh, what's another word for likeness or comparison? yeah okay you're getting there you're getting there how about proverb a proverb a mashal a proverb or a parable is a likeness or a comparison any proverb is a comparison a likeness all right a parable is a comparison or a likeness the kingdom of heaven is like you know a, a sower went out to sow a man had two sons all right in, in a proverb, you're presenting a likeness or a comparison. A wise son makes his father glad. A foolish son is a grief to his mother. There is a comparison being drawn, and so we call that a proverb. Now here's uh, Abraham in his prayer life, and he sees a comparison being drawn, and he's taking issue with how can the righteousness and the, and the unrighteous, the righteousness and the wicked, how can they be treated alike? How can they be compared? Now here's the issue. He's comparing them in terms of God judging them alike. God might then stop to say, well, why are they living alike? Why are they living together? See, and there's other factors as well. Blessing by association, cursing by association. There's other principles as well. And how God deals with moral creatures. So Abraham is uh, is not wrong to to pray this way, but there are bigger issues that Abraham has to also consider. In other words, is is God unjust if he kills if he if, if Lot dies in the destruction of Sodom? Does that make God unjust on its face? Well, why was Lot living in Sodom? All right, is God? If he spares Sodom for the sake of, of Lot, is that unfair to, to the wicked? I mean, shouldn't the wicked get judged? If he doesn't judge them, isn't he still unrighteous? <laughs> anyway, we we'll get to say more about that here shortly. Uh, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6. Another contrast between the righteous and the, and the uh, wicked. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So we've got the assembly of the sinners, we've got the assembly of the righteous, the council of the wicked, the path of the sinners, the seat of the scoffers. We have all these venues. And it seems like these two groups ought not be mixing. Why am I sitting in their council? They're not going to stand in my council. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so there's six verses in Psalm 1, and that contrast, very similar to what we're going to have here in these 14, 15 chapters of Proverbs, from starting in chapter 10. This, this whole contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And we've got to have a handle on this. I think it's fundamental. That's why I don't think it's a bad thing entirely what the Gideons do or other folks do when they publish these little pocket New Testaments and got room to add Psalms and Proverbs in there. (laughs) All right? Um, By virtue of the fact that a a new believer that just got saved, if if they're going to start anywhere, start with the New Testament, start with Psalms and Proverbs. Get this contrast between righteousness and wickedness in different things. All right, Uh, Psalm 37. I'm going to kind of read 40 verses to you this morning. You can read it yourself. But let's just take a a, a short look at these verses here in Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. And this is what happens. We uh, we get to fretting. We get to worrying. We get to... uh, grumbling. It seems wrong. We saw Jeremiah praying this a couple of weeks ago where, how come these guys are getting over? Why is it, God, that the wicked are thriving and you're letting them get away with it? You're blessing them. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're wealthy. Their uh, crops are doing great. Their kids are amazing. <laughs> you know? I'm struggling to put my kid through college and this wicked guy over here has got, you know, all his kids went through Ivy League schools. And Why does it seem that the wicked are thriving. It just seems wrong. Don't fret. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green earth. Trust in the Lord and do good. Anyway, we have the we have the, the righteousness here. Delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. In other words, have, a, have an eternal perspective. Don't sweat this life, all right? Anyway, uh, verse 8, uh, verse 7, Rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. <laughs> all right, yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. So well, that's not fast enough for me. <laughs> Relax. Slow down. Slow down. Anyway, that's a good, it's a good uh, chapter. Uh, also Ezekiel 3, verses 16 through 21. Ezekiel 3. So we saw Jeremiah a couple weeks ago. Here's Ezekiel. And it just seems like, man, they got they're they're getting over. It's a good contrast of wickedness and righteousness and responsibility for communicators of the word of God. So uh, the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. That wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. All right? That's why it's uh, incumbent upon communicators of the Word of God We would say pastors, Bible teachers in the church age. You've got to speak the truth. You can't compromise. You can't avoid an issue and call it love. It's not love. You're shirking your responsibilities. You speak the truth in love. But if you have warned them, verse 19, if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Okay? So now the blood is not on your hands anymore. You've washed your hands when you spoke the truth in love. The Apostle Paul said that, that he he had washed his hands. He had spoken the truth in love. He is innocent of the blood of all men because he had taught the whole counsel of the word of God yet. Uh, Then verse 20, again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Anyway, but if you've warned the righteous man, and the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning and you have delivered yourself. So there's two dynamics here at work. We're contrasting righteousness and wickedness, clearly, but we're also addressing the communicator of the word of God and the responsibility to speak the truth, if that is your position. If God has placed you in that position, alright, are you your brother's keeper? (laughs) Why are you in that position? Do you have a shepherding role? And if so, you better say something. If not, you better understand why there's a time to speak and a time not to speak. All right, What's the function? What's the role? Anyway, we have uh, those parameters there. And I think it's remarkable, warning the righteous, warning the wicked. And what is our capacity? What is our duty in speaking the truth and love? And am I here to fix everybody on the planet? Or who am I here for? I'm here for this flock, right? I'm here for this flock. Uh, I'm not telling Pastor Cliff how to shepherd how to shepherd his flock. I'm not telling any other pastor how to shepherd their flock. I've got to shepherd this flock here. All right. And uh, the boundaries uh, boundaries are where they are. All right. Next issue. So that's enough on that. We've got uh, wickedness and righteousness, and we're going to have a lot more on that. Mm-hmm. Moving forward. The final thing I want to say, just to introduce the chapter, let me get back to Proverbs 10 now. It's a threshold. You know, thresholds are cool. What's a threshold? It's a door. It's a portal. It's, you're on the verge of something new. You're stepping out of something into something else, right? You walk through a door, that means you're, uh, you're in a different room, a different house, a different place. Whatever door, you whatever threshold, you, you, you carry your bride across the threshold, okay? Whatever. Um, Proverbs 10 is a threshold. It has a new heading, it has a new tone, and the threshold is something different. The threshold is you no longer have parents speaking directly to you. It's no longer, my son, do this. My son, guard against that. My son, look out for this woman. My son, stay away from that trouble. My son, don't become surety for your neighbor. My son... All of that is now behind you. You have now stepped into a new realm. And now it is in the third person, a wise son does this, a foolish son does that. A wise man does this, a a fool does that. And now you're accountable. You're accountable before the Lord. And I think it's a marvelous threshold between parental wisdom and personal public wisdom. You know, there's, there's a, a blessing to being under your parents' hedge. And then it's fearful when that realiza- realization hits you that that hedge is gone, that you now stand or fall before the Lord in your own accountability. And so this can be a blessing. Subpoint A, no matter how great the parents were in training their children, or <laughs> no matter how terrible the parents were in training their children Proverbs one through nine adults stand before God and man accountable for their own application. This is a principle. This is a principle that we're going to see unfolding throughout these chapters. Adults stand before God and man accountable for their own application. And that's, I think, the distinction to be found between Proverbs 1 through 9 on the one hand, where parents are exhorting their children, and adult accountability on the other hand, personal wisdom, public wisdom on the other hand, as adults stand before God and man accountable for their own application. Here's the standard. It is what it is, all right? You either adjust to the word of God or you don't adjust to the word of God and consequences will be applied. <laughs> consequences will be applied. So there's the standard. So in a lot of times, you know, if I'm discussing scripture, I'm discussing whatever, people want to argue with me, they want to debate, they've got every yeah but in the book. Okay, whatever, I hear you. I hear you, yeah, but you're not arguing with me. Here's what it says. All right? This is what it says. Now, we can debate what it means, but we can't debate what it says because it says what it says. We can discuss what it means. We might find some flexibility in what I'm expected to do about it in application. Uh, But if we're using the same hermeneutic, then we ought to come to the same conclusion as to what it means. Unless you've got a different hermeneutic, okay? Uh, We ought to be able to interpret together to determine what it means. But then the application? Maybe there is some gray area. Maybe there is some flexibility. Maybe there is room for for, uh, flexibility in how we apply it. Anyway, we are accountable. Gladness and or grief. <laughs> Gladness and or grief are the parental experiences after the adult son or daughter enters into their own generational accountability. Gladness and or grief. See, it's new. It's a new realm. Things are different once uh, the adult son is, uh, is standing before the Lord in their own accountability. You know, in, uh, when they're younger, you can spank them. <laughs> uh, and, and we're not saying that there's no gladness or grief uh, prior to this. Sure, there's tons of gladness prior to this, and there's tons of grief prior to this. But you can respond to the gladness with some rewards and some uh, blessings Uh, And you can respond to the grief with some spankings and some rod and some discipline. (laughs) Okay? In other words, if my three-year-old brings me grief because they're disobedient to my house rules, or they're disobedient to the Lord, or what have you, or they're sinning, or they're not applying wisdom, I can spank my child. If my married 24-year-old brings me Grief. What happens next? (laughs) That's it. That's the end of the story. I'm I'm looking at Proverbs 10.1 and saying, okay, well, what what, what then? A wise son makes a father glad, a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Then what? There is no then what. That's it. It is what it is. The result is the result. And um, I have more things to pray for, <laughs> and it's not like I can uh, take action and and remedy um, remedy it. No, hopefully, if I've done enough of that in those earlier years in the first nine chapters, I'll have the I'll have the uh, gladness more often than the grief in chapters ten through twenty-five. See. Anyway, I hope this is all making sense, and and I'm. I'm teaching it while I'm living it, while I'm experiencing it. It's all new material. Sharon and I are brand new at this, okay? We're real new to this. We've got one married child and three that are still unmarried and, and um, two that no longer reside under our shingles, uh, two that still do reside under our shingles. So uh, we're, we're um, making some adjustments in our thinking on this. Kind of bizarre. We're far too young to have a daughter-in-law, but we have a daughter-in-law, so that's that's how that works, and I love it. She's sweet as anything. You know, when you look at this and you see the grief and you see the sorrow, and it seems to parallel um, ministry in a lot of ways. It seems to parallel the admonishment that comes in Hebrews 13 as far as local churches are concerned and pastors and flocks. Hebrews 13:17. If you're familiar with this passage. It's not a strict parallel, of course, because there's no obedience requirement uh, in terms of an adult son. Isn't that interesting? Um, the obedience ends in, in, in generational accountability. We're going to discuss generational accountability. Obedience ends, but honor never ends. Honor your father and mother continues Forever. Right? It continues as an adult, it continues while they're still alive, it continues after they go to heaven. I I continue to honor my mother. She's not on earth anymore, but I continue to honor her, living as she led me to, as she taught me and exemplified and so forth. I when I'm preaching Steve's funeral, I told his sons, You honor your father. All right. So that never ends. You'll always honor your father and mother even if you're no longer obeying them because you're no longer a child under their accountability. A man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to one another, the two shall become one flesh. They are now accountable before the Lord as a husband and his helpmate to, uh, in, in the Adamic mandate of, of imaging God. Anyway, uh, Hebrews 13 is not a strict parallel because there is an obedience factor that does come into play in a local church. Um, but in verse 17 it says obey your leaders and submit to them notice uh, those seem to be different issues right (laughs) obedience is not submission they're not pure synonyms you can do one or the other you should do both all right Uh, that was a discussion we had this morning on subjection if i'm in subjection to the governing authorities does that mean i obey every single thing i'm told to do is, 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 is there a distinction to be made between obedience and subjection? Anyway, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. The purpose for um, operating appropriately in a local church is because they are accountable. They will answer for how they shepherd you. They are accountable for you. It benefits you. Uh, they will give an account. So they keep watch over your souls. God has entrusted them to shepherd your soul. And this is huge, by the way. This is why uh, I take great umbrage with people that um, surrender their souls to people that their soul is not entitled to. They bear their soul to uh, to unbelievers. They bear their soul to to, to, to Freudian intruders that have no business with their soul all right and then what does it say this last phrase is marvelous let them do this with joy and not with grief now that's the parallel to proverbs 10 1 let them do this with joy and not with grief you see that and this is the direct parallel to the wise son foolish son the wise son that's a, that brings gladness to the father and the foolish son that brings grief to the mother. Right? Because it can be one or the other. And if the shepherd is a true shepherd, he'll do either way. <laughs> you know, We can do this the easy way or the hard way. The, the fun way or the not so fun way. If he's obedient to the Lord, he will shepherd in season and out of season. But, this would be unprofitable for you. Guess what? You lose reward. <laughs> Do you want to? You want reward at the judgment seat of Christ? It's called the uh, make your shepherd make your shepherds shepherding joy award, <laughs> right? The make your shepherds shepherding joy award is easy to receive at the judgment seat of Christ. Or there's the make your shepherds shepherding a grief loss of reward. This would be unprofitable for for you in the description there. All right. Anyway, there's a parallel. Gladness and or grief. Parental experiences. And parents have to deal with it. What do they do? Well, back to Proverbs 10, though. That's what they do. Generational accountability. The point C, generational accountability. You know what I mean by accountability? When we talk about the age of accountability, that's that's a big theme, right? The age of accountability. Uh, A little boy that uh, gets eaten by a crocodile, all right, (laughs) sad. But that little boy is in heaven. Below the age of accountability, a child... I, I, I believe absolutely. I think the scripture is undeniable. When, when uh, David and Bathsheba, when that firstborn son died, David said, I will go to him and he will not come to me. We, we identify that a child who dies below the age of accountability and the grace of God, that uh, even though they are Adamic, they are in Adam, that they are in that lost estate, that the grace of God identifies they were too young to accept the gospel, reject the gospel, either way And the grace of God takes that child to heaven under the principle of the age of accountability. I also think, by the way, that other aspects of of, of, uh, of, um, on the older end of the spectrum, at uh, the end of life, when thinking is not as uh, uh, sharp as it had been previously, that there's an age of accountability there too. That there's a grace of God that applies there as well in uh, in aspects there now that's the age of accountability as far as salvation is concerned right as far as um ge- the generational concept now standing before the lord in your generation what's the uh, what's the rule of thumb what's the what's the procedure what does the bible say about this well, several things, actually. You'd be surprised. Starting with Genesis 2, 24 and 25, it, depend, it, it begins with a parental function of training up that next generation and then that generation stepping out, been kicked out of the nest or what have you, all right? Um, I find it remarkable. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. For what reason? This reason. The um, creation of Eve from the bone, the design of the woman to finish the man and to provide for the man's not good alone, uh, aloneness. For this reason, the design of humanity, male and female, he created them. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, all right? It's not a boy and a girl, it's a man. It's a wife. This is uh, called growing up, <laughs> okay? There's nothing in this verse about uh, you know, failure to launch or, or uh, uh, delayed uh, whatever, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the design. All right? And so parents raise children. And the uh, fruitfulness of of this. This is what they were commanded to do be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is part of the Adamic mandate that we have in uh, imaging God. So, uh, generational accountability. And by the way. <laughs> um, what uh, what responsibility do I feel towards my um, children? In this, uh, in some respects, the modern world is quite a bit different from the ancient world, and so am I off the hook? Am I off the hook in shepherding my um, adult daughter that no longer lives at home? Does God still hold me accountable? She has not left father and mother to cleave to a husband and the two become one flesh. She's not married. See. The um the whole mindset of, of unmarried single people living the the, the the downtown lifestyle. Um that's alien to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? The idea that I mean, in just Bible times, we're we're arranging marriages for uh, you know and even my younger daughter she's 15 goodness she should be married by now in biblical times right Old testament times New Testament times even not even not that long ago and there were still arranging marriages even in our culture not that long ago comparatively speaking what is the accountability biblically now biblically now And ideally, you you hand your daughter to a husband, and then he shepherds her soul. The father should be shepherding her soul until such time. Okay. What's the generational accountability? How about Exodus 1-6? Exodus 30 and verse 14. Exodus 38 and verse 26. Three, got a trinity of passages here in Exodus that I find useful. Exodus 1-6. Uh, we have the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, and they're all listed here Reuben, Simeon, those guys. Um, seventy in number. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number. The loins of Jacob. Why is this significant? Because families form clans, clans form nations. This is the design. Uh, 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, all that generation. God deals with humanity generation by generation. See, my dad is the last of his generation. His siblings are all gone. Doesn't help the fact, of course, that they were born in the 20s, 1925, 27, and 29, and then he was born in 1945. (laughs) You know, Practically a generation all to himself 20 years later. But his siblings are gone. He is the last now of his siblings. Then uh, what does that mean? Is that significant? What does that mean? All right. Well, it means that, uh, you know, he is the old man. He is the one with the wisdom. That he's going to have sons and grandsons and, you know, children and grandchildren. are going to come to him. And there's no upstream <laughs> beyond him he is the upstream anyway God deals with it and there is a distinction to be found in God's reckoning in God's reckoning as he deals with nations because right now I tell you the, the, uh, when we talk about the, the uh, World War II generation we talk about the, they're, they're going away the baby boomers the hippies are in charge. <laughs> the rebels the, the rebels from the 60s they're in charge. And what's the consequence? What's the hand of God? Is it the hand of blessing or hand of judgment? Because of the generation now that's in charge. And what's going to happen when the millennials start calling the shots? Okay. I don't know. All right. Keep it in the scriptures. Quit rambling. Exodus 30. I'm going to start grumbling over kids these days. I'm going to be the grumpy old man. Get off my lawn. But let's see the scriptures here. Exodus 30. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. Then you are to number them, uh, when you are to number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, in case you were wondering. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. So once you fill every finger and every toe, okay, if you are 19 and below, you're off the hook. But 20, on your 20th birthday, boom, you owe the shekel, the half shekel, all right, as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. Why 20 didn't say why it just says that's what it is <laughs> okay 20 and by the way if they were 20 when they walked through the Red Sea if they paid that half shekel then they're gonna die in the wilderness only Caleb and Joshua the only two that were over 20 that paid their half shekel that uh, entered the promised land the rich shall not pay more the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution of the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So this is the atonement money. This is the half shekel. This is what they were paying in this chapter on this event. Anyway, age twenty in generation. Now, that didn't mean they had to wait that long to get married. In many cases, they were married at fourteen. They were married younger. But twenty is the is the cutoff here for this accountability. Uh thirty eight twenty six. here they're actually paying the shekel that they were told to pay. So uh, the silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was 100 talents and 1775 shekels. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, a becca ahead, head, that is half a shekel, uh, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 20 years old and upward, four, and then here's the question about the numbers. Is it really 603,550 men? And uh, That gets us into other aspects of the large numbers in the Old Testament. Numbers 32, 13. Oh, I'm out of time, goodness. We'll pick up on this because I want to talk about generational accountability. And it's not just Old Testament, it's New Testament as well. It's not just Israel, it's not just in a tribal culture with land grant and inheritance, it's today in the church age. What are we doing in our generation? So uh, we have New Testament as well. Last one I read, I guess, will be Numbers thirty two, thirteen. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. The entire generation. When is the last living World War II veteran gonna gonna die? Okay, it's, they're getting fewer and fewer. There are no more living World War One veterans, and uh, we're diminishing the, the World War II veterans. Anyway, God deals with them in terms of generations. So we'll deal with this uh, next week. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time today. Father, bless our studies. Continue to bless our studies. Father, I thank you for previous generations. I thank you for coming generations. And I pray, Father, for faithfulness in my own generation. Father, that I might please you and accomplish the purpose for which you sent me. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.